Um, I'm actually going to start by addressing the questions that are in the description. You know, as I think Julia Patterson mentioned last week, we send in the descriptions uh, months ahead of when we actually do it, and then you go back and look at it and think, oh, really? <laughs> so um, I'm going to answer those questions quickly, and then um, I'd like to talk about one question that's not in the description. Uh, so... Do you need to have a background in theater in order to be a playwright? Um, no. You don't have to have a theater degree. You don't have to be a theater historian. It helps to have some familiarity with the stage to kind of know the vocabulary. So uh, stage right and stage left, kind of knowing who does what in the theater is useful. Uh, helps to see plays and read plays. But, you know, we all did this at some point in our lives, right? We, uh, we made up stories and acted them out with friends. We made up stories for Barbie and Ken or for G.I. Joe or for our stuffed animals. And people had, some of you probably gave shows in your garage and made your audience, your, your family sit and listen to them. We all did that at some point. There, there's a wonderful scene in the, in, the, in the film Finding Neverland in which uh, J.M. Barry's producer says, you know, it's called play. What we do is it's a play. Um, we weren't intimidated by that as children. We never said, uh, oh, I can't play with astronaut Barbie because I don't have a degree in uh, aeronautics or something. Uh, we played. And I think the ability to play and to learn is something that serves you really well in the theater. I'm going to get myself one of those remote things. Sidestep over. Um, so what's the difference between a playwright and a screenwriter? That's the main one. Um, <laughs> whole lot of money. Uh, but there, there's also a difference of where you are in sort of the collaborative food chain. Uh, playwrights uh, in theater are generally pretty well respected, given a lot of autonomy over the script. Screenwriters, when I've talked to my friends who've written screenplays, that's uh, much less the case. They um, are usually at the mercy of, of the director or other screenwriters. You hear all the time about somebody who's written a screenplay, and then they give it to another screenwriter, and then goes to another screenwriter, and then to another one. And eventually, it has nothing to do with the original one. So, um, yes, the money is nice, but also you get have a lot more control over your final product. Sidestepping. Um, how is it possible to develop uh, characters and tell a story without exposition? Some playwrights haven't quite mastered that craft, but um, mostly you do it through dialogue. You, you do it through the relationships that you have on stage. You do it through movement and gesture and action. Um, it's that showing, uh, not telling thing that you hear 8,000 times in every writing class you ever take. Um, it's, we can use sound and lights and props and costumes and all those things that we have at our disposal in the theater. Uh, so there's, there, there are lots of ways to tell. I mean, we get ideas about people and about relationships and about story just by looking at them, right? We don't have to have them explain it to us. Um, so, so we have actually a lot of ways at, at, that we can do that on stage. Uh, revision is something that people ask about often. I have no idea why I ask these questions on my description, why I put them in this order, because there's no rhyme or reason to the order. But I think it was because Carol said, You're de you need to send me a description. And I thought, oh, okay, let's take a question. Um, it's an interesting thing for playwrights, because you really can't revise till you hear your script read, because that's the whole point. We write for the ear. So you um, write your script, you hear it read, you cross some stuff out, you add some things. You hear it read again, you cross more things out, you add more things. It's a, it's a very uh, sort of lengthy process. Um, it can take a whole series of readings and productions before a play is really finished. 
I, in my class last week, somebody brought in one of my plays to use as a dialogue sample, and it's published, and, and I, it was upsetting to me for hours because you read that, even though it's published, and you think, oh, I wish I would have said this. I wish I would have done that. It went too late. Um, is it up to the playwright to determine who does what and when they do it? I don't mean you're the actor and you're the director and you're the stage manager. I mean on stage. Does the playwright have to say um, everything that everybody does? No, uh, sort of, but not completely. You want to suggest. You want to um, suggest and get out of the way. I have beginning playwrights who will write things that say, will say, she enters and sits in a chair and puts her purse on the floor to the right of her. Then she picks it up and puts it on her lap. Then she opens it and gets out a pen, and then she coughs twice and puts it back down. And you think, what? Uh, no, that's too much. I, you just say she gets out a pen, and then let the actor and the director figure out what kind of purse does she have, where does she have the pen. What, um, it's their job, so you need to get out of their way and let them do their job. It's my favorite one of the things I had on there. Uh, how do you decide the story you want to tell is best told on stage? Um, <clears throat> I think you tell it on stage because you want to tell it on stage. There's no other reason for that. It's like, why is it something a, a short story and not a novel? Because that's the form you chose. Granted, there are things that work better on stage. We're not so good with uh, car chases. We're not so good with meteors crashing to the earth. Uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that with your imagination, you can't figure out ways to tell those stories, too. Um, and I think this is the last of these questions, these strangely ordered questions. Uh, once you write a play, you um, do your research, find out what theaters are looking for plays. You want to have a series of readings first so you know that you wrote what you want to write. And then you start sending it out, which is a lengthy and tedious and thankless uh, job. Um, unlike other, other uh, genres, you can do multiple submissions, so you can send to several theaters at once. And then you just wait. Um, you do your research, find out what theaters are looking for new plays, what theaters, what kinds of plays they do. So if I've written a very serious drama, I'm not going to send it to um, the Loads of Chuckles Theater Company, you know, because they're looking for comedies. Um, so you do your research, you find out who wants what kind of play, then you send it out to those places. Um, um, there are a few places actually that ask for agent submissions, so I have to have my agent do that, and then I just trust that she actually does it. And I, I don't know if she does or not, but I, I hope so. Um, you always want to have several productions, or at least a couple of them, before you even think about publication. I know for most other kinds of writers, publication is sort of the thing you're aiming for. With plays, you're really looking for uh, production, production, production first, and then publication. So you want to revise, you want to make sure before it gets published and it's in that final form and people are doing it hopefully all over the place that it's what you meant to write. My, one of my very early plays got published sort of before I had a chance to work on it and uh, it's not a great example of my work and ironically or sadly it's the one that probably gets done most often. <laughs> Horrifying is what that is. So that takes us through the questions posed in the, in the description but here's the real question I wanted to answer and talk about today, and that's why I write for the theater. Um, there are as many of us as there are other kinds of writers. We're kind of, when you tell people you're a playwright, they're, they're sort of, they look at you like, oh, that's weird that you're a playwright. Um, somebody writes those, really? Right, playwrights, I thought they were all dead. Um, there are relatively few venues for our work. It is far from lucrative, so why do it? Um, my favorite reason is kind of summed up in this quote from uh, Thornton Wilder. 
who, um, I regard the theater as, I'll read it to you, even though I hate it when people read quotes from uh, I regard the theater as the greatest of all art forms, the most immediate way in which a human being can share with another the sense of what it is to be a human being. The supremacy of the theater derives from the fact that it's always now on the stage. Thornton Wilder, you know, was uh, our town and our town, I'm not sure what else. Um, so for me, it's all about this immediacy. Um, everyth everything you see happening on the stage is happening right now, actually, and only right now. Um, hello. Oh, dear. Um, No problem. Seat, right. Is this seat taken? Because yes. there are like a good seat. some more. Um, there are others. Oh, just go on. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to be fine. All right. Don't I'm worry. sure we all are. <laughs> um, so. Oh, brother. So, as I was saying, uh, since it's all happening right now in front of us on the stage, there's a lot more potential for impact. For example, I could tell you about giving a lecture and how a woman came wandering in and sort of disrupted things. Or you could witness that for yourself. Um, and if you're lucky, you can witness it through a fantastic actor like my friend Rachel Linhart here. And her uh, straight woman, Mary Basie. Who knows? Um, so what are some of the things that went through your mind when she, when she first came in? What? Shout it out. So people thought it was rude. People thought it was part of the act. I thought she had Asperger's. So she's mentally ill. Mentally ill. There was a little tension at first. So people started catching on. There was a little tension at first. Um, people were wondering what's going to happen. What's she going to do? Um, uh, is Kate going to yell what's going to happen. Um, it was a shared experience. And that's one reason I love writing for the theater is because two groups of people, the performers and the actors, come together and share an experience. If I gave this talk again next Monday, which I won't be, Carol, just so you know, um, and, and we did exactly the same thing, would it be exactly the same thing? Why? Different audience, why else? Right, you can't recreate it. I don't believe so, and that's a good question for Rachel. You're uh, an amazingly accomplished, amazingly, it sounds like I've been drinking, but yeah, accomplished actor. Um, can you give the same performance twice? I, I would say not, um, particularly not if you're a real trained stage actor. Um, I would say that you, you aim for the, perhaps the same effect on the audience every time. taking her out to lunch later this week. <laughs> um, so the same thing is true of theater. I saw this summer As You Like It in the city park here. Um, who has seen As You Like It not here? Did we see the same play? Did we see essentially the same play? I mean, same story, pretty much. But how was it not the same play? 
Yeah, directors don't direct the same way. I can tell you one way it wasn't the same play. When I saw it, it was 98 degrees outside. And it's distracting when you think you might die. Um, and I was also there with 15 eighth graders. So for me, it was a, I didn't quite see the, including um, two girls next to me who were upset because it's outdoors. There was a frog on the seat, and on the back, the seat, back of the seat in front of us, and they were fearing for their lives from this frog that was this big. So. Which is why, please, if you have 15-year-olds who are interested in the arts, make them go outdoors sometimes, too. So, um, so the director is going to direct differently. They, I don't really know. They told uh, the the uh, artistic director told us that they were sort of doing it in a Jane Austeny kind of period. So with Shakespeare, you know, people do it all different uh, time periods. They do different costumes. So the costumes are going to be different. The audience will be different. Um, the setting is different. The out, uh, who's seen as you like it indoors? <laughs> you are lucky. Um, <laughs> It's uh, totally different. I had frogs chirping. I have cars driving by. Um, so the audience is, the makeup of the audience is different. The actors are different. Uh, one person in uh, the same, now I can't think of a single character in that play. Help me. Celia. Celia, thank you. Uh, let's talk about Touchstone. Is, uh, if we see Touchstone in one play, is it going to look the same in another play? No. There are probably productions where Touchstone has been a woman. I'm sure there are probably Touchstone. I know. Um, <laughs> that's a whole different, that's a different 11th hour discussion. But, um, it's not ever the same. If you've all, who's, been, who's ever worked on a play, been in a play, worked backstage? I'm not going to ask you to act, or will I? Um, but you know, it, people don't give the same performance every time. Audiences respond differently. Sometimes they don't respond at all. Um, people drop things, people forget to come on, people add lines, people take lines away. Sometimes, uh, if, like Rachel was with me for one production of one of my plays, and the very first line was a line that they added. <laughs> but so the fact that every single performance is happening one time and can never ever be repeated is what I love about writing for the theater. Every time you go to a play, you're seeing that play. Nobody else is going to see that play who doesn't see it that night, because everything is totally different. Until we start writing plays for robots, I think it'll be like that. But. Um, I should say here that some writers don't like this aspect of playwriting. They want their words to be the same every single time. These people tend not to stay playwrights for very long because it's frustrating to them. Um, as a playwright, you put your work out there, you try to give your collaborators the best idea of what, what you have in mind, and then you stay open to their ideas and their opinions and their creativity. And that leads me to my second favorite thing about writing for the theater, which is collaboration. Arlena, look, I got myself one of these water bottles. That I, one of my students had one of these last week, and I admired it all week, and finally I had to go, isn't it pretty? It's very... I don't get a kickback from the company. I just... um, <clears throat> thermos, I think is what makes it. Um, uh, this is something you don't find in other kind of, any other kind of writing. I, we all know that writing, even though, okay, it's great, you get to do it in your pajamas if you want to. You get to have snacks and get up and sort your sock drawer in the middle of it if you want to. But it's kind of, it can get boring. It can get, you're lonely. It's you and your computer or you and a piece of paper and a pen and it's kind of lonely. Um, the great thing about writing for the theater is there is a point where you get to turn off your computer, go to the theater, and work with all these other people who have come there to help realize your play. Um, so it's directors and actors and designers and technicians and, and, uh, and Everybody comes together with their own vision, which hopefully is somehow similar to yours. Um, 
One of the most humbling feelings I ever get is when I walk into a theater and actors are rehearsing and somebody's working on a prop and somebody's painting something and somebody's measuring an actor for a costume and the, the director's checking over her notes and I realize they're all there to work on my play. And it's, uh, it's, it's very humbling. Um, and it's also awesome because by the, this point it's also their play. It's our play. It's not just me. It's all these people coming together. I have never ever had an experience where I worked with my collaborators and it's made the play worse. I don't. I, I, I can't imagine that happening. Have my plays been produced somewhere and I didn't see them? And it, it might have not been what I had in mind. Yes, I'm sure. Um, in fact, I just I did see one that was kind of not. They changed the beginning and the, the, I also had one where they changed the ending radically of my play. Yeah. And it was horrible. And Rachel saw that it was horrible, wasn't it? It was a horrible choice. Um, but that's just kind of what happens. You put things out there, and people run with it with their own ideas. And sometimes it's what you had in mind, and other times it's strange and unsettling. Um, I am a big fan of actors, and here's why. An actor can make your character become so much more than what you ever envisioned. Um, an actor can find things in a role that you never, ever imagined were there. Um, so I want to I show you a couple of these sort of amazing performances, because these are the people who inspire me. So I have two examples. The first is from a documentary called Every Little Step, which was about auditions and subsequent production of a revival of A Chorus Line. Do you all know A Chorus Line? Um, if you don't know, it was uh, based on interviews with Broadway dancers who talked about their experiences and about their uh, uh, other backgrounds and their uh, they recorded all of these and they put it together. Uh, they took, they made some stuff up, but they also took a lot of them verbatim, a lot of the transcripts, and put those into the show. So it's uh, the deal is we meet a bunch of dancers who are auditioning to be in the chorus line of a Broadway musical. These are not people who are like, oh, I just need a break. I just got off the bus. These are people who have been in the business for a long time. This might be their last chance, or some of them, it's sort of their very last chance, because you know dancers don't. They don't hold out forever, you know, you can't, there's a point where your body just can't take it. So um, each character tells his or her own story. And this is the character, Paul, who talks about coming to terms with his sexuality. Um, and ha uh, he was uh, performing in a drag show as a teenager. And his parents knew he was performing, but they didn't know what kind of show he was in. Um, his monologue is basically word for word. Um, the story of Nicholas Dante, who's one of the two people who wrote the book, um, and this is from the documentary. It features an actor named uh, Jason Tam, who um, the important thing to keep in mind here is that he is auditioning. And this is not his story. This is a script. This is a monologue he's memorized. It's not, again, not his story. Um, it's an audition. And some people think, well, you wouldn't, you know, auditions. You just go in and do it. You wouldn't necessarily go full out. Not so true. Um, this is scripted, what he's, what he's, what he's, saying here. So um, watch the response of the director who's heard the speech a bazillion times. This is the kind of thing that um, I think shows that the impact of theater, even to, to those of us who might feel like we're jaded and we've, we've seen it a million times. And now I will demonstrate that I learned what Carol taught me about how to find these things. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay, good, good. Side of my head, this 
times it still makes me get all teary watching it. I mean, it's just, it's, and I don't think you probably often get weepy in an audition, uh, but uh, I think it's incredible. Um, so the second, and actually that picture they showed at the end, I think is, is really, I think it's Nicholas Dante, the guy whose monologue it was. Now I'm caught up looking at all these pictures. Um, the second one is from a play that, um, called One Man, Two Governors we just saw recently. Uh, it's completely different, let me tell you that. Um, it's an adaptation by uh, Richard Bean of a play called The Servant of Two Masters by Carlo Goldoni. It's written in the 1700s. Um, the main character is named Francis Henschel. Has anybody seen this play? Um, he's the kind of guy who's easily confused. And he's taken on work for two different men and he doesn't want, he can't let one guy know that he's working for the other guy. And it's set in the 50s, I think, right? It's set in the 60s. I'm so glad you're here, Rachel, too. Uh, um, it's set in the 60s. Um, and this is a, an actor named James Corden, who I think is quite brilliant. Uh, this is a short scene from the play. It was uh, what he did at the Tony Awards. So it's what you're seeing is not actually the, the production itself. It's the Tonys. But uh, talk about an actor who totally commits to what he's doing. This is... Um, weeks ago, I taught all these eighth graders, and if you, for a moment, hesitate while you're doing anything on your computer, they all start shouting at you. Look <laughs> there, look over here, do that. <laughs> so I appreciate the fact that you're not shouting. It'll be done right after this. I've got two jobs. Happy day! You've got to concentrate, haven't you, with two jobs? I mean, I can do it, as long as I don't get confused. Yeah, but I do get confused easily. But I don't get confused that easily. Yes, I do. I'm my own worst enemy. Stop being negative. I'm not being negative. I'm being realistic. I'll screw it up. I always do. Who screws it up? You. You're the wrong one for being a genius everywhere. Me. 
just when you think, oh, there must be a play about everything. <laughs> yes, there is. Um, so again, a very different scene, and uh, that physical. Usually, I don't like physical humor like that, but he's hilarious. He's so committed to it. I would guess a scene like that where you're talking to yourself would be very hard to pull off. Um, but that rolling thing, I think, is incredible. Um, so the opportunity to work with people who commit to your work and, and to their work and raise it to an even higher level is a, a source of great inspiration. It's one of the reasons I write for the theater. Um, and also, if you don't have actors, you're kind of out of luck, too, because you've got to play and nobody to do it. So, But... Um, Actors are amazing. I've had the fortune, good fortune to work with a lot of good ones, including my friend Rachel. Here's something I'd like to say about you, as long as this is a tribute to Rachel Linhart today. Um, we talked earlier about how actors can't always do lines exactly. I mean, they can't remember the exact lines. And I suppose in my, Rachel's been in a number of my plays, there have been times when you might have changed a line or two. But here's the thing. I don't usually notice, because we've worked together enough, if Rachel changes one of my lines... It's, it usually fits in so seamlessly that I don't even know it. And also, the other thing a playwright needs to do is to pay attention in rehearsals. If an actor changes a line, uh, stumbles over a word occasionally, a smart playwright will pay attention to that and, and look at it. And per, oftentimes, they've come up with a better line than what you've written. And it's time to get rid of your ego and say, that's a better line. I'm changing it to what you said. Or if there's a, a phrase they stumble over or a word they stumble over, um, Maybe it's, there's not something wrong with the actor. There could be. But um, it's a, a good opportunity to look at that and see, does it need to be rewritten so that it's, it, it works better for the actor? I still swear that every time I've wanted to cut a line, though, Rachel has said to me, oh, it's my favorite line in the play. <laughs> All right. Um, but it's, you know, it's not just actors. You get to work with uh, directors and designers and people who bring so much more to your play than you ever imagined possible. Um, and some of those uh, visionaries use things that, you know, we tend to think about, oh, you have to have, you know, like Miss Saigon had that helicopter that flew in. And, and uh, we have a lot of flying now. Mary Poppins flies out across the audience. And there's a lot of uh, Spider-Man people fly and fall to their deaths. And, um, <laughs> but um, a, a lot of people are using... Um, things that have been around ever since theater began, puppets and dance and masks, uh, things that are not, that the idea of them is not terrifically uh, complicated. So it creates this experience for audiences that's kind of unforgettable. So I want to share a couple of those things too, which are amazing. Uh, in the early 90s, some genius who works for Disney and who I hope got a big raise uh, hired Julie Taymor, who then was working off Broadway, did, uh, did a lot of puppet work, not really widely known, I don't think. Um, and they hired her to direct and do costume design for the production, production of The Lion King. Now, who's seen The Lion King on stage? I don't know if the rights are out there now, but I, I, I was just thinking today, I'm horrified at the thought that somebody's high school might be doing, and people are dressed up in Halloween costumes, like lions. And, uh, horrifying thought. So uh, some people are really dismissive of Broadway, on, of Disney on Broadway. Here's my two cents on that. You didn't ask, but I'll tell you. A lot of people have jobs because of Disney. I mean, Lion King employs a lot of people, and as somebody in the theater community, I like to see my fellow members of that community working. So technicians and stage managers and actors and uh, people who work on props and costumes all have jobs, which I think is a good thing. And here's the other reason why I am okay with um, Disney on Broadway. I went to see this the first time I saw it. I um, could only get standing room tickets. 
And as it turned out, that was okay. Because if you've ever seen it, that, you know, you've all seen the, the Lion King, the movie, the cartoon. Um, if you have standing room tickets, you are right there where the animals come in. And uh, but look at these. Look at what she's done with this. It's just, it's just not there. Obviously, I'm probably not ever going to have Julie Taymor direct my play, although she did get fired from Spider-Man, so maybe there's a chance. Here. Um, but just to know that there are people out there who can create this kind of experience, and to see it, uh, watching it here was pretty great. Seeing it live, uh, completely different. I mean, it's mesmerizing. Um, and one more thing I wanted to show you. This is, again, a thing that most of us don't have the resources to do, but it's so cool. This is from, has anybody seen War Horse on stage? Um, this is, um, a, it's an adaptation of a novel, I believe, War Horses. Now it's out as a movie, too. Uh, I'm sure the movie's fine, but um, the stage version, I think, must be spectacular. And I've only seen the video. So the puppets were uh, created by a, a South African company called Handspring Puppet Company, and it is um, stunning. Is my goal today to make you all want to go to the theater and write for the theater? Absolutely. That's what it is. <laughs> That's my total goal. It's working. Is it working? Yeah. Yes. That'll only work if you press the arrow. So those again are, oh, no, no. Those are puppets. There are people in there. 
I've, uh, I don't know, Sally, what your experience was. I have a friend who saw that recently and said she, within seconds, had no trouble believing it was a horse on stage. No trouble at all. Uh, but again, it's part of that play thing. It's what we're used to. If somebody says this is a horse and it looks like a horse, we believe it's a horse. We've gotten so used to things um, having to be realistic that we forget that we have that whole part of our brain that can imagine and play and be creative. Uh, I'm sorry, I left it in those guys. It's kind of, I want to leave it on a horse. <laughs> The danger of being the player after this probably is everybody's thinking, don't talk, just get to the horses. <laughs> I want to hear you talk. There we go, we'll stop on that. Um, I think it takes three people for each horse. There are two people inside, and there's always somebody at the head who's the... But you've, you buy that because it's the person handling the horse, but he's also the puppeteer. Uh, there's a great video on YouTube. They took the horse out to meet it. They, had, they took the puppet out to meet a real horse. So it's the two. And they also took, took them, two of the horses, through the streets of London, too, for a publicity thing. But here's what I loved about that. You watch the faces of the people seeing it, and there's such joy. It's amazing. Um, so my next play, oh, I do have a play with a horse in it, don't I? Do I think about it? You only see the rear end of that horse, though, and it doesn't require any puppetry. But uh, now I'm inspired. Perhaps we Because the horse in my play is dead, so it would be kind of weird if it started. Um, so again, most of us don't have the resources to do this, this kind of production, but it reminds us that we're incredibly, we have incredibly brilliant minds working in the theater, and that we all have incredibly brilliant minds, and we're only limited by our imagination. There are plays that take place in all kinds of places. Um, they don't all have to take place in somebody's kitchen. And actually, that's kind of dicey, too, because now, Rachel, I'm back to you, because you just directed Shirley Valentine, which does take place in somebody's kitchen, does it not? Well, yes. Yeah. Oh, right. So. Um, this isn't saying there couldn't be a good play in a kitchen. I'm just saying they don't have to all be there. You can also do a, a lot with a blank stage. I've seen plays where it's a bare stage, and I'm transported to wherever it is they say we are through the language, through the characters, uh, costumes, lights, sound. Uh, it's, it's that childhood thing that we all have that we forget that we have because we have to see things exactly as they are. It, it, we can all imagine. We all have that gift. A uh, final reason I love writing for the stage is having the opportunity to make an impact on an audience. Um, yes, absolutely. Can books have an impact on the reader? Absolutely. Can films? Yes. Uh, but what we do is live. And the fact that you can smell the orange that an actor is peeling. Shirley Valentine, I think she cooks, doesn't she make a... She peels potatoes and fries the potatoes, right? So we can smell that. We can hear the actors breathing. In some theaters, they're quite close to you. You can feel the rush of air as they walk by you, which, frankly, when I saw that outdoor Shakespeare, I was so delighted because they make entrances and exits up, up the aisle that I would get just momentary, like a little tiny breeze when they would go by. Um, these are the things that, that give theater the, a chance to, uh, to affect us in all different ways. It reminds us that we're human, that we have this shared experience. Um, so Bernard Gimbel, who was the head of Gimbel's department store, um, he went to see Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. And I think this is a true story because it's in Arthur Miller's autobiography. And playwrights wouldn't lie. Um, but he was, uh, Gimbel was so moved by the play that he issued an order that nobody could be fired from Gimbel's for being too old. I mean, it, it changed policy. Um, I think they've gone out of business since then, but I don't think it had anything to do with it. There's not a playwright to blame for that. Um, not every theater, theatrical performance results in a, in, a, in a change in a policy of a business, but um, each one does remind us that we're human and that we're not alone and that we're capable of creating this. 
Um, questions for me or for Rachel? She's <laughs> Who's ever written a play? Robert, you have raised your hand. You've written a play. Okay. Right. Uh, I'd call it a play. You took my playwriting class, I call it a play. So. All right. Because there's your sort of your own voice. And for me, my voice is the subject matter I choose. It's how I choose to address those things, which is usually even the serious stuff with some humor. I mean, for me, that's my voice. But then there's also the sort of the voice of each individual character, which can't always sound like me. It needs to sound like that character. And then, and then you put on top of that the literal voice of the actor, which can also change. It's a very weird question. So I, I, I try not to... It makes my head explode to think about. It. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, because when, when Julia and I were talking about it, I thought, wow, it's so. It's kind of confusing for a playwright because I, th I think my plays have a voice. You've seen them. You two have seen them. Thoughts? This suddenly this is a panel discussion. But, well, I, yeah. well, I would like to say something about it because I All right. thought of it before when you were talking about changing lines. Um, and I think about this when I'm directing too because sometimes there are things that. Somehow you just have to change it for directing. It's not legal. But for instance, I just directed Shirley Valentine. It's a, a play about a woman who's in England. Well, we put a glossary in the program of some of the terminology that she used because we did not want to change the play that much. But still, when it came down to it, there were a few things we thought people are just not going to get this. They're not going to understand. This. So we tried to make we tried to substitute a name or something that would make it clearer. In Kate's plays, uh, I always find them very easy to memorize. Um, and it's because the character, the character always speaks the way that, in my case, she does for a reason. I mean, it's, it's, she has a very good sense of how each character would sound. And that makes her stuff easy to memorize because that character would only speak in this way, and it's a great specificity of the character's language. And the more that the playwright puts that into a play, oftentimes the better it is, um, the better the writing is. Um, and that's, that's not always true, because sometimes two people in a play sound kind of the same, or, or, um, or you, you, someone is a more general, more general character. But, um, I think that Kate's, the, the, the voice of the playwright often comes out in a great specificity of language tailored for whatever character they're writing for. And that's very germane, germane to the 
sometimes they sort of come to me in a, I, a way I can't even explain. They're just sort of there. I almost always start out with characters, so there'll be a character who interests me, and then the, the whole story comes out of that character. The conflict comes. Because for me, everything comes back to character. Conflict comes out of character. Uh, dialogue comes out of character. I mean, it, it all comes back to the character. So I usually have a character in mind, and then I sort of, other people kind of show up. Here's why I love talking to writers, because I can say stuff like that. People aren't thinking, oh, you're insane. Because you all know what that's like. People just sort of appear, and you think, oh, now you're here. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I usually have one that I start with. Um, and then in terms of sort of it's, it's hard for someone who isn't a playwright or in, hasn't done it before to imagine what it's like to entirely embody a character in dialogue. And I was wondering if there are certain ways that you practice or like things you did when you were out, things that you noticed. Um, well, first of all, I think different. I don't know anybody who's good at every kind of writing. So I think play, I think playwright came honestly came naturally to me because I'm an only child and I used to uh, do. I, I was Barbie and Ken. You know, I, I had friends too, it's not fair. But, but I spent a lot of time playing, you know, alone. So I had to do both sides of those conversations. And, and you don't have to do it all through dialogue. You can also create that through their relationships with other people, through what they do, through what they don't do. I think I think what a character doesn't say is as important as what they do say. I think what a character won't do is as important as what they will do. So you have to explore those things. What will they do in this situation? What will they not do? What will they say? What will they not say? Sometimes we forget that that, that sort of negative side, what they won't, won't do or say, sometimes says more to us than what they will do or say. Mary, do you have your hand up? Yeah, I was going to say that. I didn't plan them to ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, just getting back to your question about voice, um, I remember you the, the monologue about the firefighter. And it's very short, and he, he was talking about technical things, but mm -hmm. it was very, very I love the research part of it. I love to research. So I spent a long time talking, like, for that short monologue. I had a friend, actually, who was a, she wasn't a firefighter. She was a, a stunt person whose uh, thing she specialized in was getting set on fire. So that's where a lot of that came from. We talked about it. Um, we talked about uh, fire, and then, and then I did a lot of research. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I, I, I like the research part. And there's a point where I have to say, okay, maybe you should write something now instead of research. Because I love the research part of it, and I think that helps inform the voice of the character too. So, thank you. Nobody else remembers that monologue. Yes. So I just saw Freud's last session in Chicago, mm -hmm. and I was wondering, where's the line between getting permission from the family um, versus staying true to the facts of the end of his life? How would a playwright manage that? That's a very good question. Um, carefully is how you would manage. The question is, uh, in, in, um, if you're dealing with a real person, how do you how do you handle that? Um, I just changed their names, but um, <laughs> in some cases I have used real. I have a play that has um, uh, John Glenn as a character. Actually, we don't see him; we just hear him. And one of the Scott Parker and one of the Mercury astronauts. Fortunately, the, all of their dialogue comes from a, a, a Senate subcommittee or a House subcommittee hearing, so it's all public domain. So I can just put it in there and have anybody's permission. 
But it is, you know, writing about real people is dicey, and I, and I don't know all the legalities of, of that, um, because you can, of course, get yourself, in any kind of writing, get yourself in trouble by using a real person. Um, I think sometimes people get get by with it if they if they say this is a fantasy on the life of so-and-so, so it's sort of their imagining of it. Because um, there are a lot of plays about, about well-known people, and I don't know if anybody has ever, I'm sure it's happened, people have said, writers, do they assume everything really happened to you and that you, there's no way you would possibly ever make that up, that you couldn't be creative enough to do it. It's, it's a very weird thing. But personal stuff, I, I'm cautious with that. I'm writing the Rachel Lindhart story, though. Oh, sure. No, I'm not. Yes? Um, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I did an adaptation of uh, Madeline Lingle's Wrinkle in Time, and it was for the school where I teach in Delaware once a year, and they specifically wanted a stage, and there was there was one stage version out, but it wasn't very good. So we had to get permission from her agent. She was still living then, too. We had to get permission from her agent. The school had to send her a whole bunch of information, programs of their past shows, to show that they actually, it wasn't going to be a bunch of kindergartners, you know, dressed up in paper bags doing um, they gave me permission to write the adaptation, but we could only do it there for two performances, and that was it. So I have this adaptation, which I think is pretty good. Diane, it's pretty good. Thank you. Um, I should always have people in the audience who agree with me and make me sound better than I am. Um, so I have this adaptation, but I can't do anything with it. They gave us permission for one time. Now, part of it was that she had. Uh, she had always planned to write her own stage adaptation, but I don't believe she did prior to her death. 
So I've thought about contacting the agent and saying, look, I have this adaptation. They gave us permission to do a reading of it here one time to for, I forget what that was for, her birthday or something, or the anniversary of the book, maybe. But, um, but I can't do anything with it or I'd be in trouble. We, did, we, um, we had a, a really interesting production here a number of years ago that uh, we had a visiting director who wanted to adapt Flannery O'Connor, correct, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, they wouldn't give her permission to adapt it. So what she did, which was brilliant, was they actually did that. They would do a story just the way it was written. But she used different voices, so different people would be the various voices. Some they used narrators, but it would be sometimes it would be like a chorus narrating. So they actually were reading the story essentially, but they had, had it memorized, and it was. And the, apparently they they were okay with that um, because they weren't adapting it; they weren't changing anything. I think that would probably vary. Uh, some places, I mean, you might just want to write an adaptation for yourself just to do it, but um, some places might want to see, if not that, a sample of your writing so that they know that you've written something before. Um, because I th almost every adaptation I know, there's something in the script that says it was done with permission of the, I mean, unless you find something that's in public domain, then you can probably go crazy with that. Anything else? Did Madeline Lionel, did she any reaction to it? Uh, she'd never read it, I don't think. And I found a, she uh, went, had, had an office at an Episcopal church in, uh, in uh, New York and apparently went to Mass often. I always thought maybe I should just sidle up next to her at Mass. Say, hey, here's my script. And, Bless you. Um, but, I, but I have to say, that was I love that book. So it made it easy to adapt, and, she, and the way she writes it makes it it was it was pretty easy to do because it, it's um, the voices are really strong. There's a lot of dialogue in it that I could just use. There's a lot of you know science fictiony stuff which made it a little hard to do on stage. But it didn't. Again, they did really cool stuff because there's you know that giant. There's a big brain thing, and there's a. Um, but the stuff they did was really cool. Um, so you, you can create anything you want to on stage. It's just a, a case of imagination. Anything else? Are you aware of cadence as you're writing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am aware of it as I write. I read things out loud all the time, um, which is why you probably wouldn't want to live with a playwright because there's a lot of constantly reading things out loud. But still, I never really can hear it until I hear somebody else read it. I can hear it when I do it. But you know, it's like anything. It's like if you proofread your own work, you don't see stuff because you've looked at it a million times. So it, I, can, um, I can hear some things because rhythm is really important. Um, but it's not until I hear an actor read it to me that I catch some things. And there are things that immediately you hear and you think, oh, that's really horrible and you get rid of it and then some things work out better than you think they would so that's always a surprise but yeah I'm always aware of that yes Rachel well I just want to so uh, a little bit but uh, going back to the question of permission uh, I'm just going to tell you how, how it was handled in a play that I'm about to direct called The Women of Lafayette oh, yeah. uh, and it refers to Lafayette uh, Pan Am 103 over Lock of the Sky. And um, it is a fact that seven years or more after the uh, 
recovered and washed 11,000 items of clothing from the crash and returned them to the families of the victims. Now that's a fact. Um, and the play, this play is a fiction about how they accomplished that and why, what forces wanted them to do that. And essentially it's a play about healing and about different kinds of healing after disaster like that. It's very careful. It says all over it, this play is fiction. <laughs> and it is a fiction, I'm sure. That, that, I mean, I'm sure they didn't use any real names or the names of the, the name of the American government official who talks to them is, I'm sure, a fake name. But, um, but the facts, you know, the, what the women accomplish in the play is a historical fact. So um, I think that's one way that you can use and we get ideas like that all the time, right? You read one little thing in a, in a newspaper and it says, uh, like there's one line and that's what gets you going and you start spinning your own idea of what happened and what that. So I think that's, a, that's something that we probably all do. Yeah, if nothing else, I hope this is, oh, yes, one more question.